What's up, bingers? Happy Wednesday. Today's guest comes to us from the land down under. Her podcast, Reward Offered, aims to highlight cold cases that have a financial reward available. She's all about solving cases and finding justice for the victims and their families. Please welcome Amanda Doyle. The internet's full of true crime podcasts. More and more are added to the list every day. Figuring out where to start or where to go next can be overwhelming. But have no fear, I'm here to help. I'm Bob Ruff, and this is the place to find your next true crime binge. So, uh, welcome, Amanda. I'm just I'm noticing that um, that Erica in in her notes wrote your full I mean full name like two middle names <laughs> possibly I don't know is that do you do you go by that or is she just being extra thorough? <laughs> um, it's on a lot of my social media because a lot of people find it kind of quirky that my initials are A B C D. So ah, they are so uh, Amanda Brahoni Bryony. Bryony, you guys talk funny. Yeah. I don't know if anybody's ever told you that. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> Amanda Bryony Cara yep. or Cara? Cara. Cara Doyle. Yeah. I'm going to just just to save characters for the title, we're just going to call you Amanda Doyle yep. if that's okay. <laughs> it's okay. Yeah. <laughs> that's probably ninety nine percent of the time what I go by. So is is there like a is there like a married name or like like two surnames or do you have two middle names? Is it an Australian thing? I'm very perplexed by the four names. No, it's just um my brother was thirteen years older than me and he worked out because our surname was Doyle, our family name was Doyle, uh-huh. he wanted me to be an A B C D, so yeah. My- oh, so your brother convinced your parents to name you A B C D? Yeah. Oh, it gets better. The car is named after his first girlfriend, so <laughs> <laughs> Why are your parents listening to your, <laughs> th- your idiot 13-year-old brother? I've, I've <laughs> never dared ask them, but I probably should. <laughs> so they named you after your 13-year-old brother's girlfriend. Yep. Or, or allowed him to pick wow. that name, at least. <laughs> nice. So so does that mean like you're the black sheep, sheep of the family? Because clearly he's the favorite. Or did you get to name more siblings after him? No, I was the last one. So I didn't get to pass on the favor to anyone else, unfortunately. <laughs> Uh, well, I'm excited about this when I was, you know, we were doing some background on you, which we do. There's not a lot about you out there. So I get to learn more about you as we're, as we're discussing this. Th- this is what I know. I know that you're, uh, from Brisbane in Australia and, and, uh, and that you are a dabbling actress <laughs> is, and I think those are your words, dabbling actress and yeah. that, uh, that you were in a horror film in 2017. So let's, let's hear about your dabbling as an actress. Well, actually, it started because I was working in law, and I didn't want to. I didn't want to be stuck in an office, um, you know, ten hours a day. And I'd always wanted to try it, so I tried. I did a and trained in acting, and then because I had a sporting background, I kind of fell into getting into stunt work. And um, then when I moved home, um, I'd always wanted to try a podcast, and I. I guess, toyed with that idea for a few years until I finally bit the bullet. And as everyone said, as soon as I did, I wished I'd started it like three or four years ago when I'd originally thought about it. But 
Um, right. You know, I kind of like action roles is like my dream acting roles. But, uh-huh. you know, Australia is a little hard to come by in the the acting opportunities, <laughs> especially as you start getting older. Did did you say that your your acting was that you were a stunt? Were you like a stunt double, or were you like a I major was tra- role? I was in, in training to be a stunt double. Yeah, because I didn't really want to be a stunt double. I just wanted to be the actress, but be able to do my own stunts. So I get to do oh, all the gotcha. fun as well. <laughs> I like driving <laughs> right, cars so fast and jumping off moving animals. So. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why I would think you were going to say car. Jump off moving animals. That's your dream? Well, like a lot of the stunts when you work with animals are usually falling off of them. <laughs> or like, <laughs> if, I don't know if you were like, I've done like Lara Croft photo shoots and stuff. And so we've tried to get horses lined up before so I could do like the bow and arrow shots on the back of the horse and stuff like that. But Have you ever tried that? Uh, not yet. <laughs> I've done I've done like shoot, shooting the gun while riding a motorbike and stuff like that, but haven't got on the horseback yet. But I, I do ride horses, so it's on the to do list. <laughs> Very nice. It's an interesting life you guys have down there. Hey, speaking <laughs> of which, like, how are things in Australia? Because I like is the whole continent down there kind of locked down right now, or is it just parts of Australia? Because from the news we get up here in the states, it looks like things are really tightly locked down right now down in Australia. It really depends what state you're in. So if you're in New South Wales right now, you're, I think statistically they're worse now than what they were, like when the rest of the world was going through the peak pandemic. We kind of escaped uh-huh. it a little bit when everyone else was hit really hard. And then um, a couple of mistakes made by a few individuals sent us back into the trenches. And um, Victoria is also um, in lockdown at the moment, as far as I know. Um, in Queensland, where I am, we have zero active cases, so we're not. Oh wow! Yeah, we're still wearing masks because <laughs> there was a story the other day of a woman who was caught in the back of a. It was a it was a tow truck driving a car across the border, and she was hiding in the boot of a car on the back of the trailer. But she'd tried to cross the border like two or three times already, and been told she wasn't allowed in. And then a couple of days later, she just walked across the border. <laughs> So, I don't know what our border control is doing between our states, but, you know, we're doing pretty well in Queensland, so go us. She's trying to get into Queensland because you guys have no cases there? Yeah. There's, which is everyone's probably trying to move they're not here. letting anybody in. Right. No. We're <laughs> yeah. keeping people out, which is great, except everyone's trying to move here, uh-huh. which is sending our rent, rent and house prices through the roof. So, everyone who's here hates, the, hates everyone who's trying to move in. So... So Queensland is like in the United States, the new Austin. <laughs> so in, in the U.S. during the pandemic, everybody is like, oh yeah, California, I saw that. I heard like Joe Rogan and stuff. Everyone was moving. Yeah, was moving every, down there. Everybody's going for some reason to Austin, Texas. So yeah, that's the that's our Queensland. Yeah. So um, the the other information I have about you is um, I, I'm I'm told that you like sushi, red wine, and true crime. Uh, and also that you dabble in bourbon. Bourbon. <laughs> I do dabble in bourbon. I'm a I'm a maker's mark girl. A, a lot maker's of the time. mark girl. I, a lot of the time. A lot of the time. How do you drink it? Uh, depends if I've had a bad day straight. <laughs> but, <laughs> <laughs> but otherwise, I'm a softie. I'll have it with some coke. <laughs> with oh, you don't mix it with coke. Come on. Yeah. See, I'm I'm a bourbon on the rocks guy all the t- all the time. 
but uh have you ever have you ever tried any of like the woodford reserve or yeah envy is a good one you should try there's a new i've been meaning to try that one i heard um i think it was you and captain talking about the bourbon um i was (laughs) they're making a little list of ones to try (laughs) uh and uh (laughs) this is funny i'm so erica puts these notes together for me and i'm like reading through them she's like i don't know she has at least one dog and one cat. <laughs> You'd think my social profiles were like private or something. Yes, I do have a dog and one cat. One, so she nailed that one. A dog and a cat you have. Tick for Erica. Um, I have an English staffie called Cody and a ragdoll cat called Farah. Uh, so um, funny, funny, you mentioned social media and pets. And the best part is Erica is, is is in the Zoom right now, but she can't talk. She, unlike you know you and I, who has like pe- like dogs and cats as like normal pets, posted a picture yesterday that she was taking a bath with a lizard, a pet <laughs> lizard, who she calls. That, that's that's the kind of person we got running the show is is a woman who bathes with a lizard. Who a lizard she woman. Refers to, <laughs> don't she drop refers that. To don't drop the lizard. Firstborn. Don't drop the lizard in the bath. <laughs> Uh, so, but she does end, end the, uh, your bio as seems like a straight up badass. I'll take that. (laughs) (laughs) Hopes to be, hopes to be. So did I hear you say that you, that you started off before you got into dabbling in acting that you said you have a background in law? Yeah. So I was, I was studying law and, um, my mom got breast cancer and, um, I was taking time off. I took a break from studying to take care of her. And um, so I started, when she started getting a little bit better, I wasn't ready to go back to studying yet. So I started working full time in law and just, yeah, I didn't, I always grew up being the sporty girl. I always thought I'd probably play sport professionally. Mm-hmm. And just the idea, of, it was the first time I'd ever really been, you know, in a nine to five job like that. And I just, I knew it wasn't for me. And then- there's actually quite – it's really quite common that there's a crossover between law and acting. There's quite often a lot of lawyers do theatre and stuff like that on the side. So, um, I mean, when you think about it, law really is just a front. It's all acting. It's who plays the game the best, who can deliver the story the best, um, at least in the courtroom. So, yeah, kind of makes sense that there's a little bit of a crossover there. Yeah, it's an interesting perspective. I just – in our other show, I was just going over the – the closing arguments for a case. And, and I always try to stress, like, it's, it's exactly what you just said. I always stress, like, you'll have weeks and weeks sometimes of testimony and evidence and everything comes out. But really, so much of it comes down to the psychology for the jurors in just hearing who can paint the better picture, tell the better story yeah, that exactly. makes the most sense. And those closing arguments right before they go back to deliberate. And then half the time, the stuff they're saying isn't even accurate. And they yeah. can, but as long as they can tell a story that 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 flows really well, so that, that's interesting. So then you you start this podcast. I mean, you're you're brand new. Well, your first episode was like four weeks ago. Yeah, <laughs> when Erica emailed me, I was like, I feel like there's been a mistake, but I'm not going to be the one to point it out. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have to ask her how she found found your podcast. I assume that that someone must have recommended you. So, so somebody was listening right away. Oh, okay. Well, thank you to that person, whoever they are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it's, yeah, it was about a month ago I released the first four episodes 
everyone who I'd spoken to who was hosts in true crime warned me that it was so much work and and however much work you think it's going to be, it's way more. Mm -hmm. And like the case that I ended up choosing, um, which was the Murphy's Creek murders, was really completely by chance. I, it's a local case to me. It's about an hour and a half drive from Brisbane. Mm-hmm. So I thought, oh, great, you know, for social media, I could drive out there, get some photos of the location. And I read the coroner's report for the case and immediately, like, it raised eyebrows. I, I just knew that there wasn't, it didn't, it's like the coroner was trying to perform some kind of magic trick, right? He laid out all this information in the coronial inquest and then came to these conclusions that didn't reflect the information at all which kind of got me digging a little further and and speaking to some people related to persons of interest and really realizing that there was something really amiss going on with the case and like even even now I mean I've I've done my four episodes on the case but I'm still trying to find obviously cuz as you said I'm brand new I'm such a small fish in this pond that I'm trying I'm looking at avenues at the moment to try and get bigger exposure for the case to get someone that has the contacts and 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 the industry clout to be able to really give the case the eyes on it that it needs and and the, and the critiquing that it really deserves because something has you know obviously Lorraine and Wendy um I would love to find out who murdered them and and to get justice for them but I talk about in the podcast about like how murder kind of creates like this broken mirror and everyone has different cracks and it affects everyone so differently. The people that the coroner named as the seven persons of interest, when I read the coroner's report, I immediately thought that there wasn't enough evidence to name them, let alone to name one man who had since died as being one of their murderers. And, you know, they've been affected too. That man that was labelled a murderer, his daughter Tracy um, is living with that label and I just don't think that that's fair and I don't think anyone should be comfortable with with what seems to have have happened with it. So you, you started the show. The, the, the podcast is called uh, Reward Offered, and you, you started the show with the concept that you were going to cover Australian cases that were unsolved that have currently have rewards out for them with the with, with which I think a, a fantastic mission of putting more information out about the case, shining a light on it more publicly, and hopefully with with your work and the reward. That maybe you could find some uh, some resolution to these cases. Did you find when you start? Because I, I can already like like I have inklings of when I first started doing truth and justice, and I was just going to tell a story as it started, and then you get hooked in. Like I'm hearing that a little bit Definitely. from you. So is, it, it, did you expect that, or were you thinking, "Well, I'm just going to tell all these stories and keep making this podcast"? And you're already. It sounds like you already have your hooks into. This first case where you're just you're, yeah. you're determined to get to the bottom of if it. If I'm being honest, I was probably cheating by trying to choose that case as the first one because I knew I I already had to learn all the back end of podcasting, right? Like just right. the recording techniques, editing, the hosting, just getting everything lined up. And I thought it's local. There's two coroners' inquests, so there'll be plenty of information to work from. Name suspects, great. This will be a breeze. Great introduction to podcasting, and I was just. Like you said, I I was snagged immediately. As soon as I read that coroner's report, I knew. Like I don't it's funny on social media, when I shared the first four episodes on a couple of true crime groups, people would immediately comment saying, like, they know who did it, it was these guys. And mm-hmm. 
I, <laughs> it's hard because I, I, all I want to say to them is I don't understand how you can come to that conclusion if you've read the coroner's report. And if you haven't read the coroner's report, then all you know is, is the information that the mainstream media has basically just regurgitated. It's like each one doesn't bother checking the information that the preceding people have have shared. Well, that's social media in a general True. sense, right? I mean, this this is going back to the seventies, though. So it's yeah, yeah, a little. But I guess yeah, it's the exact same behavior, just repeating in a different, in yeah, a different, different way. Somebody different says sphere. something, and everybody keeps repeating it. And then in, in today's world, it's a meme that everybody puts out about whatever political thing that's going on. Yeah. So, like, what is your plan? Let me ask you this: What was originally your plan with reward offer for the podcast? And has that change of what is what can listeners expect if they if they tune in and start listening? We know we got these four episodes that are out there. Like, are you going to now move on to another case, or are you going to keep going with this one? I'm definitely going to keep going on to sep- the separate cases with reward offered. I'm hoping I don't come across too many others that catch me like this one because I don't have enough time uh-huh. in my day, um, as I'm sure you understand. Holes. Yeah, but yeah, it's. The trouble with the first four was if I'd known what it was going to become, I probably would have done it as a standalone podcast. I wouldn't have done it as a part of Reward Offered. Right. But it kind of just kept unfolding as, I, as I'd already recorded, say, the first two or three episodes. The fourth episode wasn't really scripted yet. It was still like I was still getting information emailed to me and it kind of, as I said in the podcast, like I'll definitely revisit it. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm I'm trying to- Currently trying to convince one of the big wig investigative journalists in Australia to to take a look at it. I'm not going to name names because I don't want to put any <laughs> pressure on them, but uh, <laughs> maybe I should. I don't know. But yeah, it's just, I guess, kind of like I assume why you do what you do. You feel like there's something that pulls you towards it. You feel like for whatever reason, you feel like you can make a difference, and that, and that's what I feel like with this case. All it took was for someone to just pay enough attention to what the information actually said. And, you know, I'm open to the idea that I'm wrong. If somebody else can show me how that coroner's report or any of the evidence that's out there points to those men more than anyone else, I'm all ears. I'm, I'm happy to let, go, let the case go <laughs> if, if someone wants to prove that to me. Can you I, – I feel like there might be like a bit of a uh, – of not a language, but um, um, maybe a dialect different. I don't know what the word I'm looking for is. But you keep saying coroner's inquest, and when I'm hearing that, I'm I'm thinking of an autopsy report. But I feel like in Australia, that's something different because it sounds like they, like are like a medical examiner or a coroner doing an autopsy in the United <laughs> States coroner. would not be naming, yeah, would not be naming anyone. So, like, what what is a coroner's inquest? Because it sounds like investigative more than just like yeah. So, a as, medical as autopsy. far as I understand it, in Australia, if if there's ever an unexpected death. A coroner will investigate it and will come to a conclusion as to what happened. So it's, I'm not sure if this is the Commonwealth setup of it, which would be Australia wide, or whether it's handled by the states individually. Uh-huh. But I do know that if, say, someone goes missing, if there at some point becomes enough evidence that they believe they've been killed, then a coroner's inquest will be held. Or say, you know, there's a patient at a hospital that was in with an ingrown toenail and, and they suddenly die. There'd be a, a coroner's inquest into that because it's an unexpected death. So a coroner is not a medical I believe they can be. A- They're usually either a okay. medical doctor or a lawyer by trade, as far as okay. I know. 
not so it's 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 interesting because it sounds and are they law enforcement part of law enforcement no it's an independent body an independent body yeah. okay yeah it's interesting yeah so yeah for us in, in the states like a coroner is like a a medical yeah not medical doctors, examiner but, yeah but the, yeah medical examiner so i just wanted to clear that because as, as you were saying that i'm like why is the coroner <laughs> naming names that's not what they do like, yeah so it wasn't actually at the inquest they had a pre-inquest hearing the second inquest in the uh-huh. case was held in 2013, and they had a pre-inquest hearing, and, and obviously the coroner at that point decided that he felt that there was enough evidence to name the individuals before the inquest started officially. So, yeah, they're, they're basically an investigator that I guess you could say has bigger boots than your average investigator, right, because they're either coming from the, the medical background or the legal background. With okay. the a- analyzing of the evidence, I guess. Well, everything you guys do down there is so upside down. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> That's my dad joke for this week. <laughs> you know, because you guys are on the other side of the globe. Yeah, doesn't have doesn't have toilet flush in the other direction or something? That's what I'm told. I'm going to fly down there someday and find out. Okay. <laughs> I, if I'm going to be honest, I don't know what direction our toilets twirl. Yeah, <laughs> so. I've never paid that much attention either. <laughs> right. <laughs> Um, so can, tell us about the case. So, the, so the, the they're known as the Murphy Creek murders. We've already uh, alluded to a little bit of you know where the case ended up, but uh, what are the Murphy's Creek murders? What is that case? I know it's from 1974. There's like a quarter million dollar uh, Australian dollar reward uh, to find out who did it. It's still open. Tell us about the case. Okay, so uh, the two women that were murdered were Lorraine Wilson, who was 20 at the time, and Wendy Evans, who was 18. They were from Sydney, they were two nurses. They'd just started training. This was back when you did nurse training on the job. Mm-hmm. They'd finished their training for the year, were up traveling around Queensland. At some point, their car broke down near a town called, you're going to love this one, Gundawindi. And, um, Gundawindi. <laughs> and so they left the car there to be fixed and hitchhiked to Brisbane where Wendy's sister was. And I think they spent about a week there. And then they had to get home, and Susan wasn't very happy about them hitchhiking. We'd had another series of murders quite local called the Gold Coast Hitchhiking Murders. So she was a bit worried about them hitchhiking, tried to give them money for a bus or a train ticket, and they declined. So on October 6, 1974, they left Susan's house, planning to either hitchhike back to Gundawindi to pick up the car if it was ready, or to keep going to Lorraine's parents' house and to just make their way back to Sydney from there. When they didn't show up for their scheduled next shift, they worked out that, you know, something had happened along the way and and they were reported missing. And then it was two years later on June 29th, 1976, that their bodies were found at Murphy's Creek. A couple of the weird things that stand out to the ca- in the case to me are when you talk about motives, because the bodies were obviously found so long after, um, there wasn't physical evidence that there was any sexual motive. They had most of their clothing still intact, like their jeans were still over their legs and buttoned up, bras were still in place, um, underwear was still in place. So the thought along the lines was if they were raped, you probably wouldn't redress them. I know it has happened, but it's not not usual. Their jewellery was found scattered. About a week later, they brought in army with mine detectors. Their jewellery was found scattered in the dirt around them about five centimetres deep, including a men's dress ring, which is – this is kind of the first thing that kind of stood out to me. So there's this men's dress ring, which is apparently silver with a green gemstone. 
which they believe was, I'm going to get this pronunciation wrong, chrysoprase. And when Lorraine's family were IDing the belongings that were found with her, they said they'd never seen the ring before. And the detective at the time said, oh, well, you can have it back with her belongings, puts both rings in an envelope and seals it. And a couple of years later, when the family get her belongings, they open up the sealed envelope and inside is Lorraine's ring that they were expecting. But instead of this men's dress ring, there's a piece of um, like conduit, like electrical pipe cut into the shape of a ring, which, as I said in the podcast, I it makes sense to me that they don't get the ring, right? It's, it's evidence. The cops can just say we kept it. Right. Which made me think that the ring, the piece of pipe being in the envelope was probably to fool other officers because when you would pick up the envelope, it would feel like there was two rings inside. Right. But, I mean, you know, without getting too deep into all the all the things that don't really make sense, the only other one I'd probably mention was, you know, before the second inquest happened in 2013, Queensland police requested a crime, what, what at the time was a crime and misconduct commission inquiry early in 2010, and then in April destroyed almost all the physical evidence before the inquest started in May. So the timing of that is just seems off to me. Like why destroy almost all the physical evidence in a case a month before an, an inquiry that you requested? Well, and why destroy the physical evidence in a case that's still unsolved? Yeah, exactly. Like ever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so – the the ring was lost at some point, the men's dress ring. But I've been speaking to the daughter of the man who was named as one of their murderers, Tracy, and, you know, it was her dad, Wayne Hilton, who was labelled as being responsible for their deaths, and, and the coroner said that there wasn't enough evidence to name anyone else from the persons of interest. And he he apparently had a ring that was similar, and they really clung to that um, as, as though it was proof of anything, even though they had no definitive proof that he'd ever had that ring. And then, you know, when the evidence is destroyed with the timing like that, even Tracy, when she offered her DNA over the years, she would offer it, they would say, yep, great, and then nothing would ever come of it. So it just, it's hard because Tracy has a copy of the police file, which she obviously can't share publicly. As far as I know, I believe it's possibly under a suppression order. And I was checking dates of suppression orders in Australia just for random cases the other day, and they just seemed to pick some arbitrary date. Like some of them were like 2058, others others were 2078. It's like you can't even apply. Oh, really? You can't even apply to get that information until after that date. So it's so these are just what would typically like in, in the states would typically just be open public records on a case. I think that they, we they, we do have like um, freedom of information requests that you can request information from cases uh-huh. but as far as i understand it if the case is open you're going to get stonewalled either way and then w- when there's well, that's the case here too sometimes and then when there's been a coroner's finding the police just have to say to the coroner we think this is relevant to the case and then he puts a non-publication order on it and and no one can talk about the information even if you have it so when tracy who was wayne hilton's daughter when she got the copy of the police file, she like it cost her a significant amount of money to get access to that file, even though she had every right to have it. Um, she'd appeared on behalf of her father at the inquest. She was expecting some sort of bombshell in there. Um, and as I said in the podcast, she's said to me, if I found any information that my dad was involved, you know, I would 
I'd turn it straight over to the police and, and, and I genuinely believe her. I think she just really wants to know what, what's happened and, and who dropped the ball and why and what the motives were and, and, and what the real story was about how everything unfolded. So I was looking at the case online. I got, I got my notes uh, that were put together for me and then I was just reading about it a little bit. And I, I, I read somewhere that, that it's, I, th- I believe the words where it said the two women were brutally gang raped. Yeah. So that's I was shocked to hear that you say that they were found fully clothed. Yeah, they were definitely. And found it was two fully years clothed. later. Yeah. Yeah, and, and they were found two years later. So, so the you know, there's not a lot of where did where did that notion of them being raped come into the in into the media? Part of the even in the coroner's report, when you read it initially, there's several women. I assume they're being referred to under pseudonyms whose statements were entered as evidence because it was the coroner's, it was part, basically the police theory that these seven persons of interest were part of a gang that uh-huh. went around Toowoomba in the 70s, forcing women into cars, taking them out to the bush or remote locations, raping them, and then taking them home, basically. They would drop them outside their house. Um, mm-hmm. Except the, the three statements that the coroner himself uses in the coroner's report to supposedly prove the existence of this gang. None of those women name any of those seven persons of interest. There's even one one man named who has a name similar to, well, I guess I say it in the podcast. So one of the the supposed rape, alleged, alleged rape victims names a man called Shorty Lawrence. And then the coroner puts bracket, sick bracket after it and then puts Shorty Laurie, who was one of the persons of interest, as though the witness had made a mistake about the name, except, and now I'm not saying that Shorty Lawrence is guilty of anything, but when you look at her physical description of Shorty Lawrence, it matches Shorty Lawrence, not the person of interest Shorty Laurie, who the coroner tried to indicate she had meant to to say his name. And he's the only name out of any of the persons of interest that's ever named by any of these alleged rape victims. The case is so perplexing because there's, there was also, wasn't like on the night that they disappeared or sometime around they disappeared, there was like a camp where they called the police because they heard screaming and then the police came out and also heard screaming but couldn't locate where the bodies were found, right? Yeah. So that kind of, I think they used that a lot to try and pinpoint the time of death um, as being uh-huh. late. Um, I think I believe that phone call where the officer went out to the camp was about 9 p.m. The case is kind of complicated. There's Toowoomba is, sits at the top of a hill, and there's a there's a big range road that used to lead up to it. There was a the roads were separated. One would go up and one would go down on the other side. And I do believe that there was a large group of men in different cars on different days, different numbers of men being present at, at each instance that did go around assaulting women, raping them. A lot of people believe that they saw Lorraine and Wendy that day on the range. They, they struggle with the dates. They struggle to pinpoint that it was definitely the 6th of October. And I think, mm-hmm. as I laid out in the podcast, there's a couple of them that I think could be Lorraine and Wendy, but this sentiment over the years that they were all Lorraine and Wendy, there's just there isn't enough evidence linking all the descriptions. So whether that was Lorraine and Wendy, I think the timing lines up with even with some of the sightings on the range. But yeah, I mean, 
even that gets a bit murky. So it's hard because I'm I'm kind of tied by some things that I can say and some things that I can't say. So I think everyone should be a little bit concerned with the fact that it seems evidence can be twisted so easily to suit a particular narrative that people want it to reveal. And even though 2024 will be 50 years since Lorraine and Wendy were murdered, I don't think that what's un- what happened to them or what's unfolded in the case is any less important today than what it was then. I realised that the case that I chose to cover, like, you know, there's possibilities of police corruption and cover-up and, and all those angles. And they're obviously difficult questions to ask and, and to look into and, and even finding people that are willing to look into it is difficult. But I think people have to be willing to step up and, and, and do the right thing and, and, and as I said, not just by Lorraine and Wendy but by the other people that are affected by these decisions. Who's, who's fun? So, that, so it's, a, it's quite a large reward trying to find the people that killed Lorraine and Wendy. Uh, who's funded the reward? Where did the $250,000 come from? So in Australia, in all our states and territories, it's usually sometimes it's just the police that put up the reward. Sometimes it's just the government, but a lot of the time it's it's a cohort between the two. Mm-hmm. We've just had another couple of cases of two young girls that went missing in New South Wales, um, Amanda Robinson and Robin Hickey. They've just had one million dollar rewards announced for both of them because they they I mean they've believed they were linked forever. So. You know, for someone who can solve that case, that's $2 million that you can walk away with if you've got the right information. It's hard. Like when I started, the, when I thought of the idea for the show, I knew that at some point somebody was probably going to say to me, what about the cases that don't have rewards? It's not that they don't deserve the same exposure. And and I have, (laughs) as I'm sure everyone who starts a podcast does, you know, I've got multiple ideas for different types of podcasts. It's just, this was just one. Right. I just thought it was a unique angle I hadn't seen. And as sad as it is, sometimes you do have to motivate people that feel like that they're at risk or in danger because of information they might give. And, you know, whether it's $250,000 or a million, sometimes that's enough. And I think that's why the different police departments put, put them up because they think that it can make a difference. So what is your, your plan going forward? So you put out your first four episodes on, on the Murphy's Creek murders. I assume you're already working on your your next case that you're going to be putting out. When does the when do the next episodes come out on another case? Uh, so I'm hoping to have that one out next week. It's mm-hmm. it was meant to be out this week, but unfortunately my dad had an accident a couple of weeks ago. Um, oh, no. So that's been my priority. Yeah, freak accident. Who knew you could almost lose your life at a dog park? <laughs> of all at places, a dog park at a dog park. Yeah, did he get attacked by a dog? No, he didn't. That's what you would think. <laughs> It's right. It's, I, yeah, I don't know. It was a was it a lizard? God, it was a lizard, wasn't it? <laughs> um. So he got knocked over by a dog, um, at the dog park, as you do. Uh, but because he'd uh-huh. had both knees replaced, he had titanium knees. So when the knees dislocated, uh, sorry, just one. When one knee dislocated, it impinged the blood flow to his foot. So he's at the hospital and they're trying to put the dislocated knee back in under x-ray and and the technician realizes his foot is going black. So they transfer him to a different hospital and, yeah, almost loses his life, almost loses his leg, um, all because he got knocked over at the dog park. The irony being if it was a real knee, he 
you know, it probably wouldn't happen because it would just naturally have, I guess, fractured in such a way where it wouldn't have impinged it. But yeah. Right. Also ironic that had it been a lizard, it probably wouldn't have happened <laughs> that at all, which is probably what Erica <laughs> is saying right now behind her. <laughs> Her blacked out screen. <laughs> she is. <laughs> that would be a much safer animal. I'm getting him a lizard. <laughs> right. Well, I'm glad Dad is doing is doing better. Uh, the podcast is great from what I've heard from it so far. I'm looking forward to the new episodes and uh, and actually when so when this episode airs, you should have new ones out because I think we're I think you're slated for two weeks from now when we're recording this. Yep, that's the plan. Great. So make sure you check it out. Her name is Amanda Doyle. Or Amanda, Briani, Cara, <laughs> Doyle, ABC. Let's go with that. Nope. Her name is Amanda. Her name's Amanda Doyle. The podcast is called Reward Offer. Check it out. I'm sure it's going to be your next big true crime binge. Thank you so much for being on, Amanda. It's been a pleasure meeting you and getting to know you. And I'm looking forward to more podcasts. Great. Thank you very much. Thank you to you. Thank you to Erica for setting it up. Um, to Mike, who's going to no doubt make me sound amazing. Thank you, Mike. <laughs> and to whoever it was that mentioned me to you, thank you very much. True Crime Binge is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Audioboom. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing. Music and artwork by Shane Yoder of PutThemInASong.com. Our website, TrueCrimeBinge.com, was created by Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com. If you're a listener and would like to recommend a future guest or a podcaster that would like to request an interview, you can do so right on our website. And again, that web address is TrueCrimeBinge.com. If you're enjoying the show, please do me a huge favor and take a minute to rate and review us on iTunes or whatever platform you're using to listen. And make sure you give us a follow on social media. We can be found everywhere at True Crime Binge. Thank you so much for listening and make sure you tune in next Wednesday morning for another podcaster, another case, and another True Crime Binge. In March of 2015, Elizabeth was invited to Stanford. She was now a full-blown celebrity. The Silicon Valley prodigy who was upending medicine. Forbes had anointed her the world's youngest self-made female billionaire. She was a sought-after guest speaker. Her talk at Stanford was a fireside chat with Theranos board member George Schultz. About half an hour in, she got a question from the audience about the FDA. She answered it with her usual spiel about how she welcomed FDA oversight of laboratory tests. But as she spoke, Schultz interrupted her. There are frustrations. For example, it's okay for me to say. I don't know. <laughs> I don't, maybe you should not for say. For example, <laughs> Elizabeth has No, you should not say. No. That uh, will spot Ebola very early, before it is symptomatic. So it can be treated before it becomes communicable. So we're waiting for approval. 
We're, we're working with the agency. We have a very good relationship with the agency, and it's been, um, it's been something that, um, that has proved to us that supporting the requirement for FDA regulation, even of tests that right now um, don't have to be regulated by FDA, is the right thing to do. Elizabeth hadn't told Schultz that Theranos' Ebola application was stalled because it had failed to answer the agency's questions. Instead, she'd left him with the misleading impression that it was the FDA being slow. And now, that fib was boomeranging back on her in public. Although, being the smooth operator that she was, she was able to play the awkward moment for laughs. There was something else Elizabeth hadn't told Schultz. By the time of their talk at Stanford, her interest in Ebola had waned. The outbreak in West Africa was coming under control, and after the death of the traveler from Liberia and Dallas, the CDC had successfully stopped the epidemic from spreading on U.S. soil. As one former Theranos executive put it to me, after the new year, Ebola was kind of dropped. Elizabeth was no longer bugging us about it. Meanwhile, Byron Trott's BDT Capital had walked away from an investment in Theranos for reasons unrelated to Ebola. In fact, why BDT walked away is a whole other story, a fascinating one, that I'm going to tell you in another episode of this podcast. But back to Ebola. Before it walked away, BDT had drafted a 21-page memo about Theranos for its co-investors. It listed all the Ebola claims Elizabeth and Sonny had made to the firm. One of those claims was that the CDC had asked Theranos to develop an Ebola fingerstick test because of, quote, the propensity of field workers to accidentally stick themselves with infected needles. That wasn't true. A person with knowledge of the matter told me it was Elizabeth who'd approached CDC Director Tom Frieden, not the other way around. And Frieden had never found her claims about Theranos' test credible. He'd even likened them to cold fusion. That's scientists speak for something that's laughably impossible. What about the $120 million contract Theranos claimed to be negotiating with the government to test for Ebola at U.S. airports and in West Africa? As far as BDT knew, that contract was now expanding to, quote, provide the infrastructure to contain future bio-threats. But Frieden had never heard of such a contract. So, were Elizabeth and Sonny lying about it? In hindsight, it sure sounds like it. You'll see on the third paragraph down, it says, company is currently negotiating the terms of a contract with the U.S. government to provide testing services for Ebola within U.S. airports and alongside the U.S. military and aid agencies in West Africa. Did you tell BDT this? I don't remember a specific um, conversation to that effect. That's Elizabeth being confronted with the BDT memo by SEC staff attorney Jessica Chan in the summer of 2017. Were you negotiating the terms of a contract with the U.S. government at that time with respect to Ebola? Not that I can recall. So would this statement be true as of late 2014? I don't think so, but I, I can't remember exactly who we were engaging with on Ebola contracting. Sonny, too, was asked about the big government contract 
in his SEC interview two weeks later. What about the statement, two more paragraphs down? The company is currently working with the government to finalize a contract, which it plans to announce in the coming months, launching in U.S. airports shortly thereafter. My recollection is I did not make this comment, and uh, I don't know if anybody, best of my knowledge, was talking to the government or not. Clearly, there never was an Ebola contract under negotiation. It was something Elizabeth and Sonny said to impress BDT and its co-investors. But that FDA approval never came. Although Theranos eventually did send responses to the agency's questions, the FDA found them unsatisfactory and its application languished. The Ebola epidemic subsided in early 2016. By then, I had published my first expose on Theranos and the company was in a fight for its life. To try to turn public opinion around, Elizabeth went to Philadelphia to address the annual meeting of the American Association for Clinical Chemistry. There, in front of thousands of laboratory scientists from around the country, she unveiled the mini-lab. And she touted something else, a new test. Finally, we'll present results on the nucleic acid detection capabilities of the mini-lab and introduce our Zika nucleic acid-based assay on mini-lab. The Ebola epidemic had faded from view, but there was a new plague sweeping across Latin America. Zika. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the clip, you can search for Bad Blood, the final chapter, wherever you get your podcasts.